Hey guys, welcome back. In today's episode, me along with Aaron and Johnny go over the crypto industry. Both Aaron and Johnny have experience in that industry much more than I do. I come across as a skeptic throughout this episode while Johnny and Aaron uh, take a more bullish stance to what crypto could hold for the next 10 years. Aaron takes a very quantitative approach where he's not looking at the fundamentals of crypto. He's looking at how the macro environment affects cryptocurrency in itself, which is a unique approach that I haven't heard of before. Um, so I think you guys will, will definitely appreciate that. Johnny is more of a long-term fundamentalist uh, within the crypto industry, but he also understands that macro does affect um, you know, the crypto, cryptocurrency industry. So I hope you guys appreciate this episode. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Intern Investing. I'm Connor, joined by two special guests today, Johnny Zerdi and Aaron Garfinkel. Um, they're going to tell you guys a, a little bit about themselves just in a moment. But I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Seeking Alpha. I use Seeking Alpha on a daily basis to read transcripts, get investment ideas, engaging the sentiment of the market. Subscribe and use our link in the description to get Seeking Alpha Pro for $99 a year. All right, Aaron, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you do and a little bit about your career. Well, so I went to, I went to school at the University of Florida, and that's, uh, that's where I met Johnny. I got my bachelor's degree in business management, and then I got my master's degree in real estate. So upon graduating in about 2019, that's when I started working with a, a large bank in real estate capital markets. And I primarily work on multifamily and senior housing underwriting and, and the whole, you know, I, I basically sell debt. That's, uh, I guess that's a good description of what I do. Mainly permanent financing on multifamily apartments. But in my, in my free time, I like to do research on macro markets and, you know, crypto, stocks, commodities, whatever it might be, and just kind of get into various you know trade ideas or whether it's long-term investing but that's kind of what i like to do in my in my free time with that <clears throat> awesome johnny uh yeah likewise i went to school at the university of florida for mechanical engineering didn't really do the uh, finance route right out the gate uh, worked for one of the global leaders in manufacturing and hvc equipment for about six years uh, quit that job in 2021 to partner with a crypto education and software development company called Fundamental Secrets, and that's what I'm currently doing today. And um, yeah, I began investing in 2017 with crypto, not traditional finance, and uh, lost a bunch of money in that, but still stuck around because you know I, I heard some hype and I was uh, trying to learn a little bit more, not just about crypto, but you know general finance in general. And um, you know from there, you know just sticking around with with cryptocurrency specifically, um, once the crash happened in March of 2020, and we had a huge amount of stimulus come on, and you know, just kind of a flood of liquidity, um, not knowing that just sort of happened to because some of my friends were also doing this, you know, put some money into crypto, rode that up uh, throughout 2020 into 2021, and uh, was able to to benefit from that a lot. So, um, luckily, learning from Aaron, I was able to. Uh, you know, capture a lot of those gains and not, you know, fall uh, to the massive bear market that we had in 2022 in the crypto space and risk assets. And uh, very thankful for that, Aaron. You know, thank you again. And um, yeah, it's just been great learning and, and being able to kind of dodge an enormous bullet, not going, not, not uh, sinking with the crypto ship. 
Well, so that you might might say one more thing. You go ahead, Aaron. A lot of you're thanking me, but a lot of that credit goes to who I learned from, which is uh, Keith McCullough with with Hedgeye. He's he's been a you know a great coach, and he's him and his team are a big you know factor of where I've been able to learn a lot of my own ideas and and take you know their research combined with my own and even kind of take, like apply that to crypto markets as well. Yeah, so I'm really interested to get more into this conversation because it's not often that you have level heads in the crypto world. Um, you know, most people aren't worried about macro. They just think their assets are going to the moon, or that's what I see on Twitter. Um, I probably see the worst of the crypto industry on social media and a variety of other outlets. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to getting to talk to you guys a little bit further. But how did you guys get involved um, I know, Johnny, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, starting to work for that company. But I know, Aaron, you write a newsletter, I believe, um, for a crypto company. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what, what you do there? Yeah, so it's not, well, I guess it's, I guess it's a newsletter. It's more of just, I call it Friday reading. And it's with the same company that Johnny had mentioned, Fundamental Secrets. So I, that's kind of how me and Johnny crossed paths again after college was, I mean, I've been in, I mean, I've been investing probably since my, I got my bar, first like bar mitzvah check, right? Um, started, you know, just steadily investing that in, in, in stocks, mainly probably back then it was mainly blue chip stuff like Apple and Amazon. <laughs> but um, since then, you know, I've kind of taken custody of my own account once I got into, like once I got out of college and really started to be more hands-on managing more actively and kind of around the time when, you know, things started to kind of bottom out of the pandemic, you know, growth started to reaccelerate. We started to see, you know, commodities and crypto really start gaining some price momentum at the end of August of 2020. And I was just, I was just learning a lot. And, you know, I knew that Johnny had been involved with just with in the crypto industry in general. And I wanted to I just wanted to learn more. So I, we started talking more often and, and that slowly evolved from, you know, me investing in crypto to me kind of getting involved with the group. And as I was invested, that's kind of once I, you know, I was putting a lot more time and research into, you know, what I was looking at, but that's kind of more so when I came across the, the macro correlations that exist within the crypto industry. And that's, that became more my, realm of focus more than any type of fundamental factor. It was, it, it became more quantitative than anything. And that's kind of how, how the, you know, the Friday reading got started is I'm, I'm in this group and I just, I'm trying to help us all keep, you know, level heads, be able to look at things from multiple perspectives. And that's, uh, I, I'm trying to use those Friday readings to incorporate a macro outlook or a macro perspective and kind of and kind of show how that could potentially influence not only you know traditional markets in the equity space but also the crypto markets as well i mean i think i kind of know what he was going towards you know asking us about how do we first get involved with crypto and you know kind of like the macro picture um that correlates with it and um yeah i mean i really didn't start learning about that too much until until you came on came on board aaron um, and it, it's really important. And for those people who, and we just happen to kind of fall into it, but, and, and there's other people around too, but those people who were able to study macro as well as crypto, they're the ones that made out of it with a, a bunch of money, right? Um, those are the people that made huge gains and kept them. Right. They didn't just hodl. 
Right. I'm in yeah, hand. I know it's, I mean, it's truly, I mean, what, what really started happening was just as I was trading multiple things at once without having any access to any quantitative model or any, anything like any type of data that supported what I was seeing, I was already starting to see those movements in the market where, you know, the, the S and P would be rallying and Bitcoin would be rallying with it, but also it wasn't, it wasn't completely uncorrelated when you'd get a market sell off or a correction in the market. That's typically when you'd get a larger crypto correction. And even though, you know, the S and P might, might've went down maybe 5% over a week's time period, the crypto market could have gone down 25% right. during that same period. And that was deemed, you know, a, just a normal part of investing in crypto. I remember like learning about that back then where people were like, Oh yeah, this is normal. I'm like 25% drawdown. <laughs> yeah. How is that normal? Yeah. But I think, you know, just with anything, it comes to how you, you know, risk manage something. And just because it, there's a lot of volatility involved doesn't mean you can't trade it in a, in a risk adjusted manner. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's basically just, you know, it's almost like investing in, I don't even, I don't even know if you want to call it like a three X ETF of like the S and P or something like that. Yeah. I mean, right now it's actually pretty, I mean, we were kind of talking about this this morning with the real, the realized volatility of Bitcoin's just about as low as it's ever been. And it's, I think it's might be like 28 or something like that, which yeah. is right around NASDAQ volatility. Right. And that's, I mean, that's something really interesting on its own, but the S and P volatility is probably somewhere around, you know, 20 ish. So it's not tr like the, the volatility is not that much greater than the S and P. However, back then it was more of a, you know, maybe 20 S and P versus maybe a 65 to 75 to 80 for Bitcoin. So it was trading about four, four times the vol usually, you know, kind of how we got involved with crypto and macro specifically and how we kind of came together to do something that not very many people were able to do, which was, you know, pay attention to both crypto and macroeconomics in order to, um, you know, risk manage appropriately. And I don't want to say that, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that no one was doing that, but I think that very, very few people were kind of risk managing and using this type of like thought process that we were using and kind of, you know, mixing the two together. So that, that's where I have a big question. <clears throat> I understand how fundamentally the macro affects equities. I understand how it affects bonds. You know, if you look at equities, for example, present value of future cash flows goes down when rates go up. If you look at bonds, bond prices go down when rates go up. If you look at gold, even, uh, typically when rates are going up, stocks are coming down and money is flowing into gold. But that's not the case with, obviously that wasn't the case with gold in 2022. And it also wasn't the case with crypto where money is not flowing out of stocks and putting and getting put into crypto, which was kind of the idea behind Bitcoin, right? That it was going to be an inflation hedge, that it was going to be, you know, a protective asset to put your money into. And I, all I can see it as is a speculative asset and speculative assets tend to, you know, have a higher beta versus, you know, their benchmark. Uh, and so when I'm looking at crypto, for example, that's the way I view it. I, and I understand that macro does affect 
but how exactly does it change the value of that asset? Yeah, so I mean, with, with cryptocurrencies, it has to do a lot with liquidity in the markets. Um, you know, pretty much, it, it's almost like a spillover from all of the liquidity that was created um, with all the stimulus that happened because of the uh, the the you know pandemic. So I mean, it's it's almost just like a, an area that spills over uh, when things are are you know very very much um, you know flourishing with liquidity. And. You, I mean, you mentioned, so, I mean, you mentioned interest rates, gold. So gold generally is very interest rate sensitive in, in a negative way where rates are going up and that typically puts pressure on gold because gold performs better in disinflationary or deflationary environments where real rates are going negative. And Bitcoin, on the other hand, you could make the argument that it served its purpose as an inflation hedge by, you know, if, if you know, if you take it with, from a grain of salt of, you know, inflation. I don't have I don't have the exact these exact numbers up in front of me right now, but you know, inflation accelerated from August 2020, where that crypto and commodities bull market began, all the way through you know November of 2021. That's a a pretty solid solid run it made right there. And inflation, I mean, might have been peaking out around that time, except when Russia invaded Ukraine. That really kind of ratched that kind of stopped whatever you know disinflationary pressures were like working and you saw inflation really, really accelerate once you had that oil shock. And that's kind of when what I see is where Bitcoin kind of started to kind of fork in the road between inflation and and its its price action. At the same at the same time, you know, around fall of twenty twenty one is when you saw the Fed start to get more serious about tightening policy. And that's right around, they didn't raise any rates until February of 2022, I believe, but they just by talking about it and kind of jaw, jawboning the interest rates, they, they were pretty much raising policy and tightening liquidity without even ever raising a rate. They were just doing it uh, via their mouths. Johnny, do you have anything to add there about, you know, just how the macro does affect Crypto, when there's no fundamental value change, like you can see in equities and bonds. Um, well, I mean, as far as like monetary policy with central banks go, you can you can definitely see that. Um, you know, I mean, you kind of saw that in 2018 when um, you know you saw Powell try and you know tighten up a little bit on on rates. There, um, he was. I think he raised rates. How much in 2018, Aaron? Was two, it, maybe, it, it was maybe two and a half to three and a half. Right. And so that, that was like one of the biggest drawdowns in, in Bitcoin's history there. Um, and then, you know, once things loosened up, you, you saw it expand again. So, I, I mean, in terms of, I, I agree with you that it is a very speculative asset class. And, and most cryptocurrencies are just tech companies, tech startups that instead of you know selling stock they're selling these made up coins that they're creating right yeah i guess that that changes the conversation to okay maybe why does monetary policy affect crypto um because there's no fundamental change in value to what is the fundamental value of a lot of these cryptos um you said that they're like tech companies can you dive into that a little bit more 
Yeah, so pretty much all these other cryptocurrencies, except for Bitcoin, you know, basically is just a tech startup that they're trying to, you know, have, um, they're trying to develop some sort of software that's based on blockchain technology. And, uh, you know, they're trying to incorporate a lot of the fintech services that we're already used to, but in a quote unquote decentralized way, uh, which is, it, it's not, it's not so much decentralized when you really take a look at it. And when I say the word decentralized, I don't mean, you know, who's holding the most coins, um, who's, who's running the crypto company. I'm talking about the actual um, consensus mechanism, the code that is the monetary policy that's coded into a lot of these, uh, you know, blockchains. And that's what a lot of people have the misconception of when they think of the, the word decentralization in cryptocurrency and what that means, because it's really just the consensus mechanism for validating transactions on a decentralized ledger. Because, um, and we can kind of go into the true, you know, value of Bitcoin. And it really is, you know, a, a way to, you know, transfer money uh, to anywhere in the world for a low fee. And there's no... Um, there's not really any other fees than that, right? If you try, if you're a big uh, corporation or, you know, um, another uh, foreign government, if you want to send money, you know, overseas, it has to go through four in intermediary banks and it's going to tack on about 6%. So if you're trying to send a billion dollars from one country to another, it's going to cost you 6% of that. Whereas if you send it through Bitcoin, you know, you're paying a $16 transaction fee for on a billion dollars. What is the, I guess, the regulation of that money worth? I, I think there's a conversation to be had about that as well, where if you send that billion dollars to the wrong wallet, poof, it's gone. Versus if you send it the traditional route, you have some regulations and, and some ways to actually go and get that money if it is lost. Um, you know, is there anything in the pipeline in the crypto space for it? I guess a lot of this can be a conversation about, um, you know, credit cards versus crypto for all of your transactions, where if you have fraud with your credit card, you can go to that credit card company and get a rebate for whatever that transaction was. With crypto, you have nothing. Um, there is really nothing that you can, can go and do to go and get that money. So my question is, is the whole decentralized aspect of this, where there is no central entity to take to, to offer any insurance on your purchases, is that an innate good thing or a bad thing? That's another thing that I get held up on. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It depends on how you look at it. And, you know, in that sense, you know, is Bitcoin a good way as a means of a medium of exchange to go out and buy groceries? Um, you know, probably not. You know, it's, it's essentially, you know, cash or physical gold that you have in a safe, right? If someone comes and, and steals that or, you know, someone takes it and throws it in the middle of the ocean, it's gone. Right. That's essentially what it is. And um, the, the reason why, you know, the, the whole thing with decentralization has any value is because you're not having a central bank control the monetary policy. Like it's, it's built into its code. Um, so it's not like, you know, a central bank can just raise rates and devalue your, your purchasing power right away. It's all, you know, spread out and, um, you know, built into its code. And, you know, same thing with like um, a bank. If it wanted to, you know, it could just go ahead and freeze your assets. Yeah, it has that ability to, um, you know, replenish if you, if you um, 
say that you've had an invalid transaction and whatnot, but at the same time, I mean, you're seeing figures today, like Andrew Tate and others, where they can just shut down his bank account, right? And, you know, not for breaking the law, even though I think he just did get arrested for something in Romania. Um, but there's other, there's other celebrities that have um, had their bank accounts shut down by these centralized authorities that have access to it. And so what Bitcoin allows that allows people to do is it's a form of free speech as well. Yeah, you know, if you do send your money to the wrong address, yeah, it's, it's pretty much uh, lost. But what you're sacrificing there is, um, you know, for some people might be worth um, the freedom and independence from a centrally controlled, uh, you know, central bank. Um, so when we're, when we're looking back at 2021, I know there was a lot of comparisons, not only in the tech sector, you know, if we're looking at equities, uh, but also in the crypto sector, comparisons back to the dot-com bubble, where you had a ton of companies that were just being start. There were startups in garages. There was no real revenue, no nothing. Um, but their valuations would soar when they would go public, and these people would collect money. Um, you know, we were seeing companies with no earnings trading at you know hundred million dollars. And when I look back at 2021, and I see crypto, it looks very similar to me. But it seems more, I guess, broad across the entire asset class, where there was actually some real tech companies in the dot-com bubble. Uh, but it seems like there's even less real cryptos that have any sort of value. Now, I'm a crypto skeptic, um, so I I am skeptical on any value in any crypto. Uh, but would, do you think that would be a good comparison? I mean, have you seen a chart of Arc? That's true. It doesn't really look that much different than Solana. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I mean, I, what is what, what's Arc down to, down to now? About thirty one. About down about what seventy five eighty percent. Yeah, I, probably in the eighties. Yeah. But you know, I think. I mean, here's Tesla. I think it really. I mean, you can't just categorize it as. You can't just be overly negative about it because, you know, here's an ETF that was has been marketed to investors by, you know, CNBC and other very, I mean, probably even some wealth managers put a lot of people's money into this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while some of these companies might end up doing really well over the test time, there's also potentially zeros within this portfolio as well, just as there are zeros within the crypto industry. And that kind of coincides with, you know, high yield spreads. And as you see, you know, we're, as monetary policy gets tighter and tighter, that pressures the cost of capital and you see high yield spreads start to rise. Well, I got this from JP Morgan's asset management report, Q4, dated September 30th, 2022. And, you know, you can see the, how the blue line here really lags the gray line the gray line being the high yield the high yield spreads and here we are and this was september 2022 but the bankruptcies are still lagging lagging right and i guess what i'm where i'm going with this is that any company that is reliant on liquidity or debt or the ability to issue equity in the markets right is in danger right now if they're if they're unprofitable because the cost of capital has gone up significantly 
equity markets, it's much more difficult to do a, do an equity raise or issue stock, or especially because likely if your stock is down that much, doing an equity raise or selling stock at these levels is very dilutive. But it just I, it it goes to show that it impacts all assets that are reliant upon that type of liquidity and that type of easy money that we've seen over the last 10, maybe 12 years, right? And that's also the only environment that crypto's ever known is that quantitative easing policy that really, really kicked into gear following the great financial crisis. John, you got anything to add on that before we move on? Uh, yeah, so I mean, in terms of it relating to the dot-com bubble, I mean, that's a pretty uh, fair comparison because um, a lot of these crypto companies are negatively cash flowing companies. And instead of, you know, getting loans from uh, investors, they instead went the route of let's just create these made up tokens, sell these to seed found or seed round investors, and then just get the market to pump them up and then dump them. And there's 21,000, over 21,000 altcoins or crypto companies that are out there. 99.99% um, of them are probably going to vanish and were indeed um, just like you know dot com bubble uh, websites that were popping up soaring and then dumping right um, and so you know a lot of these companies too like they were offering like interest and stuff like that um, similar to how a lot of uh, growth stocks uh, offer uh, you know high yield dividends um, and there is a lot of debt in crypto obviously when you take a look at something like FTX where they lent out their made-up token, right? Um, you know, you're, you're seeing all that kind of just crumble. And, you know, a lot of people point the finger at regulators. Some people point the finger at crypto itself. Um, a lot of the issues with a lot of the things that were coming out in 2022 uh, were mostly surrounded the these unregulated centralized exchanges. And we can get into that a little bit later too. But in terms of answering your question on, you know, is it similar to the dot-com bubble? Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, I, I want to get I want to get into what you just talked about there because when I'm looking at the space, you know, in the last 12 months we've had Luna and Celsius, all these all these have blown up. Um, we've seen what FTX and Three Arrows Capital all go under. Do you think this is just I mean the complete wild west and there's zero regulation and that's part of the problem and that the space does need regulation? Well, yeah, I mean you can't. You can't see any financial statements for any of these projects, for for starters, right? I think it would I think it would bring more legitimacy to the space if you could, you know, look up X token and say, okay, what does their balance sheet look like? Are are they actually generating any revenue? What's like just be able to go through an income statement and balance sheet and see how they're capitalized and see what they're actually earning, or if, is it just full air, right? And I think, I mean, I definitely think that's a, a very necessary step because right now what you're seeing with, you know, BlockFi, Celsius, FTX, Genesis, Digital Currency Group, all, I mean, Luna, I mean, everything that we you, you mentioned, it's, it's not just, this isn't just a normal, you know, bear market, right? Then I think that's a lot of pe things like people in the crypto space just like to say, oh, this is just happening because this is a bear market. But in reality, what's happening is, you know, a full-on financial meltdown within the crypto industry. You're having 
contagion risk and, and counterparty risk spread throughout. And that's, I mean, that's definitely going to be a difficult challenge to overcome going forward. But, you know, to the point of regulation, I definitely think that if that if there was at least some type of transparency in place to be able to see how certain companies were collateralized, then it would it definitely would have helped in hindsight. But going forward, I think that's something that's probably pretty critical to bring back trust in the industry and be able and make some of these actual because just like the dot com bubble, you know, I think that is an accurate comparison, but this is probably way worse. You know, you have you have companies that did make it out of that. You had a lot of companies that also went away. And that's one of the reasons why I want to point to this chart again and show that so this is the dot com bubble. This was the default rate, right? You saw high yield spreads rising for a number of years and then ultimately the lagging default rate followed and a lot of those companies went out of business. Well, the same thing's probably going to happen within the crypto industry where there are going to be a lot of companies that go to zero. However, bad actors will go out of business and that'll pave the way for people who are creating successful or profitable businesses or have good intentions who survive to actually potentially create something of value one day for, for their investors. In other words, Connor, it's the panic of 1907, but with you know crypto's own version. So it's somewhat y'all think it's separating the wheat from the chaff, or however that saying goes, where we're trying we're figuring out what the good exchanges are, um, what the good cryptos, I guess, are, and that's pretty much what what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, gotta try and find the the, the fang stocks of crypto. I, I guess you would say. Although that's not, you, you don't really want to call it that nowadays, looking at the fangs, how they're performing. <laughs> Just curious, do you think, uh, do you think Coinbase is a, I guess, a sound exchange? Kathy owns it. Kathy does own it. I'm just curious what y'all's perspective is. Do y'all have any money on Coinbase? I don't, I don't have any money on any crypto exchange right now. Neither do I. Okay. Gotcha. Well, I guess that answers that. <laughs> um, but I guess the, the last question that I want to talk about is the biggest question in this industry, and that is the use cases. It's something that I just I can't get. Um, you know, I've heard different people come on to CNBC or whatever and talk about use cases for whatever crypto. Um, the, the best use case I've heard is actually for Solana, which is Solana Pay, where you have a bunch of smaller businesses and those smaller businesses, say a gas station, for example, or a restaurant, their gross margins are sitting around two to 3% um, on, on a lot of the goods that they sell. This is, not every, this is not a good restaurant, say this is a below average restaurant. Gross margins, say they're 4%, and they have everybody using you know, credit cards these days, and those credit card companies take a 2% fee. Well, that's half of their gross margin right there, gone. Solana Pay supposedly has 0. .0001 Sent uh, transaction fees for all of their transactions, and this can be um, a big solution for that specifically. But that goes back to the centrality aspect, where there is no central force guaranteeing your transaction, um, or there there is no aspect that can give you a rebate if there's any fraud involved. Um, so that use case for me is kind of out the window. Um, I want to know if there are any others 
that you guys know of and can talk about um, that can convince me that this stuff could really actually be used one day. So the, the specific use, use case that you referred to right there was a medium of exchange for retail transactions? Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would argue that that use case isn't there right now for crypto. Um, but there are, you know, use cases, like I mentioned earlier, the efficiency of cross-border payments, right? Um, in, a, in a way that, it's, that, you know, that money, sure, you're going to have to make sure that the 24-digit uh, uh, public key is correct. But I mean, you know, you don't have to send, you know, a billion dollars all at once if you want to break it up, you know, and make sure that everything's okay. You know, you can do it that way too. Um, but, you know, the efficiency of cross-border payments is, is something that's um, very cheap and almost instant, right? Using also too a way where your transaction isn't going to be halted by some sort of bank just because they need to like halt it for whatever reason, right? Um, right now, I think it's like I mentioned, six percent, as well as it takes anywhere between like five days to a week in order for that money to go through, right? So you are saving time and a ton on fees, but you you do sacrifice, um, you know, if you if you wanted to get your money back. But I mean, all you have to do is make sure the 24-digit public key is the same you can test it out with a dollar if you want once you make sure that that's good then you can send the rest so the efficiency of cross-border payments and then you know if you take a look at the past 10 years over um you know since the inception of bitcoin it technically is the greatest performing asset in the last 12 years in terms of percentage gain now will that last probably probably not right diminishing returns um but you know if you were just trying to um you know beat uh, in inflation as well as any other asset class, if you would have just bought $10,000 worth of Bitcoin when it was at 25 cents, I mean, you know, there's a UK use case there for a store of value because you just outcompeted everything in the past 10 years. Um, now that's in a special case, right? You can argue that, you know, we're, we, were in a, we're, we were in an environment of low inflation, uh, low interest rates, and, you know, pretty much there was little conflict there. And so, yeah, things are gonna flourish at our, you know, highly speculative asset classes. And now that we're about to enter, you know, maybe the next decade of higher than usual inflation because of supply side constraints that it's going to take anywhere between, you know, five to 10 years to maybe build that infrastructure to take care of the supply side uh, inflation that's going on. You know, will we see another 10 years of what Bitcoin just did? Probably not. So the use case of a store of value for the last decade for Bitcoin may not be for the next decade. Um, so things are going to change there. Um, specifically with Bitcoin, uh, the, the use of miners, right, which is the way that, you know, um, blocks get added to the blockchain and how they verify transactions and, and really hold up the decentralized ledger and, and keep it decentralized is, you know, the role of miners and, uh, and validate, or, um, yeah, validators. And, um, you know, we can get into the technicals if you want on that. If not, that's okay. But what's that? It's a big way over my head. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can I can try and explain it, um, you know, if, if we want to get into it a little bit more. But essentially, you know, when you think of a miner, just think of a machine where energy comes out and then out, you know, it does you know, some calculations and out pops a Bitcoin. Right. It's the reward mechanism that comes out. And so what a lot of these um, uh, energy companies have done, um, I think I forget who it was. It was either like Exxon or one of these companies. They were using it as whenever they were doing natural gas um, drilling or just you know drilling for oil, sometimes they would hit a natural gas pocket and they would just let that natural gas into the atmosphere. Whereas now they could cap it, 
actually build a temporary Bitcoin mining rig um, around that natural gas that would otherwise just be you know, let out into the atmosphere, they can capture it real quickly, use it to mine some Bitcoin, and they actually can recirculate that as money in the economy at that point. Um, so there's, there's that aspect um, as far as use case goes. And then also, too, especially now in the wintertime with, you know, the energy crisis that's going on with Europe, there's a lot of people that have actually started picking up uh, mining with uh, different mining pools, and it's actually generating enough heat to heat up their homes. <laughs> that reminds me of when the Germans took all of their cash and they lit it on fire because it was worth more to heat their homes than it, than it was, in, you know, to, to tr transact with. Um, but continue. I'm sorry. Well, it w that would be a good analogy if the money never burned, because technically you're cr you're you're able to create Bitcoin while also heat your house. Um, but um, multi-purpose. What's that? I said multi-purpose. Yeah, multi-purpose. But I think you know a lot of people get confused on use case. Um, the main one that I see is just the efficiency of cross-border payments at this point in time. Now, there's other things that are being built on top of Bitcoin's blockchain, like there's something called the Lightning Network, which is basically supposed to be the next layer that's it's like another blockchain layer that's built on top of Bitcoin's blockchain that's supposed to be for, um, you know, it, it is a little bit more centralized in a way where like the Lightning Network is, is essentially a company where if you wanted to use Bitcoin for transactions, you could do that and it wouldn't be just on a decentralized way, but it would it make transactions for, you know, retail, a retail medium of exchange a little bit more easier. And, you know, we can we can go into that a little bit more, but I think that there's going to be more, more use cases coming out. And this whole entire altcoin cycle that we've kind of been in um, for the past few years, it's really just been like a selling of potential use cases in the future, just like the dot-com bubble. So, um, that's that's kind of what I've been seeing. Hopefully, it answered some questions there. Yeah, definitely. Aaron, do you have any use cases? I know you told me a little bit about some smart contracts. Um, we had breakfast the other morning. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think that it's just like anything that we give value to. As as a society, we we choose what we value, and whether that's you know gold or silver, U.S. dollars, British pounds, euros. We, I mean. We put, you know, our faith in, you know, for if it's a dollar, you know, we're putting our faith in the U.S. government to basically back and secure our currency. Gold, you know, it's it's a metal that's shiny and people have liked it for thousands of years. And, you know, why why does gold have value when silver is a much, you know, better industrial metal? You know, it's it's just the, the value that it's people have, you know, assigned to it over time. And just, I mean, that's kind of the way, you know, I see, I see Bitcoin is, you know, it's just whatever people assign the value to. And, you know, I'm not really, you're asking a lot about use cases and, and these are all like fun little stories and whatnot. But in reality, I really don't look at any of that. I just kind of look at, you know, math. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I can go, I mean, I can go into that for a second where, you know, I'll share my screen. Really, you know, I'm just, I just, you know, I'm more concerned about, you know, if people are going to assign something value, which they currently are, and, you know, that could go away or maybe it won't. But if they continue to assign something value, how do you, you know, how, how do you risk manage that or how do you conceptualize that? Well, you know, if for those viewers who might not be 
familiar with correlation coefficients, it generally runs on a R scale of negative one to positive one, where the most extreme values are going to be negative one or positive one. Negative one being an inverse correlation, and positive one being a strong correlation, like strong positive correlation. And so this is, and I put the website here for, for Hedgeye for those of you who are interested, but this is a screenshot from their crypto quant model. Long ago, I used, I used a really old one, but it was from April of 2019, 2022. And if you look, you know, you basically just have a one-to-one -one correlation with the S&P 500, and you have an inverse correlation with the US dollar and a very significant inverse correlation with the VIX. So what does that tell me? If, you know, the VIX is going up, usually, you know, the S&P 500 is going down, so Bitcoin's probably going to go down with it. And it's just going to trade, you know, as a higher beta version of the S&P 500. And so we, we kind of talked about beta earlier, and, you know, it's kind of just the measure of an asset's, you know, or portfolio's volatility in comparison to the overall market. And, you know, a lot, throughout a lot of last year, you saw, say, the S&P 500 might have traded, you know, anywhere from during the bull market, you know, 14 to 20 volatility, whereas Bitcoin might have been in more of a, you know, 50 to 80 range. Most of the time it was trading at four to five times the vol of the S&P 500. So if you assume that there's a 0.95 correlation, very strong, it's, you're basically just taking a levered bet on the equities market in that sense, where if you saw, you know, a 2% move in the S&P 500, you could potentially see an 8% move to the upside for Bitcoin or a minus 8% move to the downside. And so that's, I mean, that's mainly the way that, you know, I conceptualize it. And, you know, this chart kind of can show you this is back from earlier this year, but the difference of, you know, levels of beta where here's the S&P 500, here's the Qs, right? Ethereum, Bitcoin, and then some altcoins, right? And so each one, you know, is a higher beta version of the other. So it's like you're getting a little bit farther out on the risk curve, right? So you have the S&P, get a little bit farther out on the risk curve. You have the Qs, get a little bit farther out on the risk curve. You have Bitcoin, a little bit farther than that's Ethereum. Then outside of that, you start getting your altcoins. And then your altcoins are going to just be higher beta versions of Bitcoin. And that's and this is so this has nothing to do with that, like fundamental value or anything. It's just the way that I've observed their behavior and the way they trade. So, I mean, if you want to take a levered bet on the U.S. equities market when you have M2 accelerating or they say, you know, your yield curve, when the yield curve is generally getting steeper, you know, that's when, you know, growth and inflation are accelerating, right? Economic growth and more so about economic growth, economic growth is accelerating. And that I would have found from my studies is, is very impactful for Bitcoin's performance as well. And most likely because that ties back into the equities market, the equities market is going to do much better when, when you know, companies are able to grow, grow their revenues, increase and expand their margins. And if you, if you look at the chart here, this was pretty much the first peak for Bitcoin right in here. And then this was the final peak which was November the 8th, and it actually peaked on the same day as the Russell 2000. Both of them did it on the same day. And that was, to me, that wasn't a, you know, that wasn't a coincidence. It, it was very meaningful. And it had to do with a final, you know, re-acceleration of growth into the fourth quarter and to where now we've been slowing ever since. And that's evidenced by the yield curve here. And you can also look at, 
you know, if we were talking about inflation earlier, how you can argue all day whether Bitcoin is an inflation hedge or not. But when we saw M2 accelerating at one of the highest rates, it was the crypto markets and Bitcoin was one of the highest returning assets during that time. And if you wanted to protect your money from inflation or just seek yield, well, the crypto markets was a great place to have your money as M2 is accelerating. But now M2 is going negative. And if you if you notice where this chart kind of peaked, this was early 2021, around February. And that's actually when ARC peaked, was when M2 peaked. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. This has been a great episode. Um, it's helped me wrap my, my mind around crypto a little bit more. Um, every time I have a conversation like this, I, I learn a little bit um, because it's not a space that I'm, I'm in very often. Uh, but if viewers or listeners are trying to either reach you guys or read any of your stuff, um, how can they find that? Johnny? Um, so, I mean, I'm on Twitter, um, at Johnny Zerti, um, as well as TikTok, at Johnny Zerti as well. Um, you know, you'll find us on there, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, posting any type of uh, macro or any type of news articles that we find pertinent to our goal, which is uh, to, to risk manage appropriately and to, uh, you know, keep our money safe, um, as well as you can go to our website, uh, www.thefundamentalsecrets.com. Yeah, and you, can, and you can find me on thefundamentalsecrets.com. My Twitter handle is at Garf. That's G A five five R's and then an F, I think. Awesome. But, I'll, I'll put it in I'll put it in the description. So all right, cool. Check it out. Appreciate you guys. For all viewers, listeners, thank you for staying tuned. We'll see you next time.